from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Baseball cards broke a lot of barriers just like World War II did. But as a little kid growing up, yeah, you wanted a bunch of Mickey Mantles, Stan Musial, but you also wanted Willie Mays, Hank Aaron. You wanted the black players as much as you wanted the white players in your collection. It's a great equalizer. I'm Elaine Chaw. Ed Wheatley is an award-winning author, film producer, and sports historian, best known for his work around baseball. But his passion for and knowledge about St. Louis sports reaches far beyond diamond and field. His latest book, St. Louis Sports Memories, Forgotten Teams and Moments from America's Best Sports Town, offers great proof of that. The sleek, stacked volume mixes history with anecdote as well as archive photos to celebrate a wide range of sports world features and firsts that may be unfamiliar even to the most knowledgeable St. Louis sports fans. We're diving into some choice forgottens, and what's made this project unforgettable for the author with the author himself. Ed, welcome back to the program. Well, glad to be back. Always enjoy coming. America's Best Sports Town is a pretty bold claim. Yeah. How did you arrive at that? Well, I mean, it, it, you go with the facts. Uh, the facts would tell you. I mean, yeah, yeah, big cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, they've had a diverse history. But when you start investigating this diverse history that this city has, it's so many sports. And within all the diversity of those sports are the many, many firsts, many things that have happened here. And it's not only just teams and winning championships. It's much more than that. It's the individual athletes themselves and the impact on the diversity. I mean, we can go to all these firsts for women that happened in women's sports all happened here in St. Louis. The African-American community, it all happened here first. Just so many mind-boggling. And then on top of it, you know, you talk about – Forgotten teams. You know, one of my favorite, name the four NFL teams that called St. Louis home or the four major league baseball teams. You know, the Blues were not the first hockey team. Or back when we had an NBA team, the Hawks, there was an NBA team before them. And then people like deer in headlights because they don't know. And that's why we write the book, to help them know. This book here certainly includes baseball and pro wrestling as well, but most of it is about other sports, about 14 of them, in fact, as well as hometown announcers and sports venues. So was there a person or an incident that convinced you this book needs to be written and the writer needs to be me? Well, you know, first of all, I was doing this Wrestling at the Chase book. And I was doing book signings. People would come up and say, when are you going to do a book on bowling? When are you going to do a book on St. Louis tennis? Well, you start looking at that. We just, you know, the greatest of all bowlers were here in St. Louis, uh, the team Budweiser's. And all these records that go back to the turn of the 1900s, all in bowling here. Well, there's a story, but it's not enough for a big book. And then as I started joking with my publisher saying, people don't know all these things. Like as I spoke a moment ago, they don't know who the four NFL teams were. They don't know what the four top cups in, uh, in, in all the sports are. You know, four of them are from St. Louis. 
And, you know, well, what are they? You know, there's the Herman Cup, the Davis Cup. Uh, you know, we've got the Sinkfield Cup and we've got the Walker Cup. And people are like, well, what are they? Well, I mean, the Herman Cup's the equivalent of the Heisman Trophy given out to the best soccer college players every January at the Missouri Athletic Club, like the Heisman is done in December at the New York City Athletic Club. These are things that St. Louis at times gets its teeth a little bit kicked in. These are things to be proud of. These are things special. And when you look at some of the first that ever happened in the world of sports happened here, we need to remember these and take pride in them. Mm -hmm. So your book covers the forgotten. And then there's information about sports that may never have entered some people's minds to begin with, right? So yeah. that could have something to do with people not having grown up in St. Louis. True. That, that would be me. Um, or and a, a narrow definition of what qualifies as a sport. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one example that in your book, Aaron Mermelstein, a local producer and yeah. writer, yeah. covered in an episode of his self-hosted video series, It's a St. Louis Thing. Man, when I first started playing this game, I played my dad a long time ago. Sons coming up, growing, and they even coming to the competition now. Trying to teach these youth a little something about these pitches and what we can do. Outside of the St. Louis area, they don't have any idea what it is. So I always carry a cork ball in my car. So some heavy St. Louis accent. <laughs> and what should we know about that St. Louis original with a direct connection to beer, Corkball. Corkball, yeah. You know, if you grew up any time in the 50s or the early 60s, even to the late 60s, and you went around driving, most of these local taverns everywhere, north to south, uh, would have these corkball cages in their, on their property right behind the bar where the patrons would go out and play corkball, this, this special little game that was created, you know, the ball's a little bit bigger than a golf ball, and the bat's just a little bit bigger than a broom handle. And there's stories of just, you know, how it really grew out of, out of St. Louis. But the stories are like Yogi Berra teaching the Yankees how to play corkball in Yankee Stadium, or in World War II, sailors on the flight deck of these aircraft carriers playing corkball. I mean, it's just one of those things, the touch points, the tentacles, where do they all start? Here in St. Louis. Right. Well, and corkball as a, an export, mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> domestically were... and internationally, was a really interesting thing to learn Well, there about. were so many exports from all this in St. Louis. The Cory Leagues, the little leagues that uh, George Cory created for little kids in 1934, soon they were in all the states. Mm -hmm. And again, they went over into Europe. Why? Because it was the servicemen in the wars, World War II in Korea, talking about it and getting these all set up. Your chapter, Baseball for Kids, really resonated with me personally because I have such fond memories of playing summer league mm -hmm. softball when right. I was a kid, growing up in southern Ontario, Canada, right? So that's quite a distance from where we are yeah. here. And learning that uh, that, that kind of youth, t-ball, baseball, softball, that it originated here was a really cool surprise as I was reading the book. Right. It really was. I mean, it was one thing George Corey's wife encouraged him, you need to do something to keep these kids from becoming, in her terms, hooligans. Keep them out of trouble. Do this. Uh, put these sports and use baseball because that was America's game at the time. Now, today's endorsements for athletes, it, that has become something almost ordinary. 
-hmm. And one of the many forgottens in your book that's striking, pun very much intended, is about the very first athlete to get a million-dollar endorsement. What's the story on that? Well, it really goes back to the St. Louis was the cap, world capital bowling, and the person you're talking about is Don Carter. You know, you'd think it would be a baseball player because this happened during the golden years of baseball, but Don Carter was given that first million-dollar contract uh, to sponsor a bowling ball. Bowling was everywhere across the country, you know, and it all a lot of it was broadcast from the Arena Bowl right out on, you know, Hampton and Highway 40 uh, next to the arena. And it was just this competitive game that everybody could play, everybody. And it was then, he was part of the team, Budweiser, which in 1958 just shattered the, the all-time record. That just shows the depth of, of, of bowling as this national uh, entertainment vehicle. And it was something everybody could do, everybody could relate to. So go buy a Don Carter bowling ball. And Don Carter also had a very interesting way of bowling, right? And sort of thinking about the marketability of that player for an endorsement. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you know, everybody's got just like a batting stance different, you know, whether it was Stan Musial had his way of corkscrew, you know, you see guys like Pujols with his big swing and, and spread out legs. Don Carter had this one, the way he would hold his ball high with his arm out and as he came up the walking the lane to deliver, you know, he had this little, I wouldn't say awkward motion because, you know, if you're the best, it's not awkward, right? But uh, he had that little way about him. And, you know, again, bowling was always televised on the weekends and people were glued to it because there weren't all these other channels, there weren't all these other forms of entertainment. And that's how it really became uh, so popular. you got to look at what was the time. The time is not like today with... 400 channels on your TV, you had three, and you're watching the things that are on there. You mentioned that at book signings and the like, that people were asking you for for work about other sports. Mm-hmm. But what did the process look like for you as a writer in compiling all of this information? Well, there are two parts. Is you know, I think I've got a broad, being a sports historian, a pretty broad background, I knew a lot of little pieces. Now, you know, I'll draw out my outlines and then go in depth. As example, you know, we had the Golden Girls of Tennis in the 1960s, these, these uh, three women. And, you know, outstanding stuff. I started realizing, you know, here's these women that nobody hears about today. You know, they played at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, the French Open, the Australian Open. I started reading. And I was like, whoa. And I, I contacted them. And just like Ray Bluth, one of uh, Don Carter's protégés on the team, I go to their houses. The dining room table is full of medals from Wimbledon, you know, trophies, the Reitman Cup, all these letters, scrapbooks, and sitting, going through, you know, they're so proud. They want to show because you're bringing them back into the spotlight. And so, you know, I, I start with my outlines, do my research, meeting these people and those that have passed on. You know, you find sources or you find people to talk to, and you just, you just keep digging, in that process of digging, yeah. there's a lot that you know, yeah. right? This encyclopedic sort of <laughs> store of knowledge. Yeah. Can you talk about a favorite discovery that you made in the process of researching for this book that you found yourself sort of giving way or, or sharing with others, even though it might be a spoiler for what you would be putting yeah. in this volume? Well, I think there's two. The first one was today we have the NCAA Finals for the big basketball dance of March, March Madness. 
But back in 1948, the national basketball cha- champion was the NIT tournament, which was held every year in New York at Madison Square Garden. In 1948, the big top team in the nation is New York University. Here, St. Louis had an up-and-coming team. Small college, coached, you know, put together. They went to the finals of the NIT, and they destroyed New York University in what would be a home game for them, Madison Square Garden. At halftime, Ed McCauley had more points than the other New York team of combined of all the players. But the thing that I thought was just so impressive about that, and we look at the scope of, of sports today across the country, at, even at that time, every single player on Coach Eddie Hickey's team came from St. Louis. They all graduated from a St. Louis high school. Just blew my mind. I did not realize that because you think this team that became national champions had to have somebody from somewhere else. No. That's how good sports was in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. You know, the other really neat thing was St. Louis had the first woman owner of a major league team. We also had the first woman owner of an NFL team. And everybody goes, I know that. Last night I was at a, uh, speaking at a dinner and everybody goes, yeah, Georgia. Nope. It wasn't. You know, St. Louis had four NFL teams. I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? But, uh, I mean, there's all these little nuggets you find that are just like wow moments. Do you think that there's something about sports in particular that made it the place for there to be that kind of integration? Oh, because, absolutely. Because, you know, you're talking about St. Louis yeah. in the 60s yeah. and what the, the social cultural climate yes. was. It's a great equalizer. You know, there was protests and things going on in the 60s, and we were interviewing some African-American and, and um, Anglo-Saxon people who were at the wrestling of the chase that we knew they were there. And we asked them about that. You're sitting all side by side, but there's protest. Oh, that, that, that's out there. This is wrestling. The other thing is I always use it was watching it on TV. The swells might have been sitting ringside, but everybody, every Joe, Tom, Dick, and Harry's watching it right over their shoulder on television, so it was an equalizer. You know, baseball cards. You know, in a segregated society, baseball cards broke a lot of barriers, just like World War II did, where they were, you were fighting in the trenches alongside whites and blacks. But as a little kid growing up, yeah, you wanted a bunch of Mickey Mantles, Stan Musial, but you also wanted Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, you wanted the black players as much as you wanted the white players in your card of collection because they were the best, and that's who you watched. So sports does have this way of breaking barriers. When you're talking about the baseball cards, mm-hmm. there's a great tactility. Right? You can you hold them. Oh, you yeah. can look at them. They have a, a particular smell. Oh. And I appreciate that what you have brought together as far as these you know, forgotten teams and great moments is in the form of a physical book, Thing. right? Right. Now, What's funny, as soon as you said that, I, bet, I can't tell you how many people all of a sudden smelled that pink piece of bubble gum that used to be in the baseball cards of the 60s. Right, the flat The flat, one. Yeah. hard <laughs> piece of bubble gum. I, I could just see, as you said that, people's eyes, that, you, that is a distinct smell you still remember today. So in terms of culture mm-hmm. and nostalgia, um, you know, there might be people 
to pick up on the point about picking up mm-hmm. people who pick up this book, yeah, who aren't into sports the way that you are, right. but are interested in some of the other elements that you have brought into mm-hmm. your writing right. to make this a a book for everyone. For someone who is in that camp of not being a super sports fan. What chapter of the book would you recommend that they start with, and hopefully they'll get sucked into it in the best way possible? Well, I think there's a, a a a couple chapters. I mean, you know, I talk about it at the very beginning. You know, St. Louis started as a river town, then it was the gateway to the West. Then we were an automotive town producing more cars than any other city in the country except for Detroit, and then we became the leader in the air with McDonnell Douglas and all the jets in the, in the Air Force were from here. But throughout all of that, there's always been sports. And that's the one thing when, when you ask someone across the country, where are you from? St. Louis. Oh, the Cardinals, you know, or whatever, the Blues when they won the Stanley Cup. Sports is an identity for St. Louis. And that is something that I, I have experienced personally yeah. too. I had uh, family friends come in from Korea. Yeah. And they were very excited to visit the stadium mm-hmm. um, because they know about the Cardinals. Right. They've got a, a young Korean player. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when you think about just what happened a month ago and for those three last months of Albert Pujol's season, everybody was your friend because of b- pay- baseball and Pujols. You would be standing in the line to check out at the grocery. Somebody, did you see that home run he hit last night? Or you think he's going to get 700? I mean, people, you become a friend through sports. That other times, you know, you're sitting there looking straight ahead. They talk to you through sports. One of the reasons that St. Louis is such a great town is the announcers who announced here, they taught people the game. They made you understand the game, whether it was baseball and Harry Carey, how Harry Carey in the days, the pitcher looks in, toes the rubber, he's got the sign. Here's the windup, the stretch, the pitch. There was no television. He would do that almost on every pitch to every batter. And you were visualizing it. And the same thing happened in hockey with Dan Kelly. We had so many great announcers that I really wanted to give them credit for making and help making St. Louis uh, such a great sports town. Sort of oral mm-hmm. memory. Right. right, and those are things you hear in your head to, to hear Dan Kelly go, he shoots, he scores, and that scores has about 18 O's in it. Or, you know, my favorite line I joke about all the time when I'm speaking on it, Dan Kelly would be, here we are tonight for St. Louis Blues hockey. The Blues will be skating left to right on your dial. And I'm thinking, like, with my little transistor radio, how are they skating, you know? And everybody who hears this is going to do the same thing. I remember that, you know? Ed Wheatley is the author of St. Louis Sports Memories, Forgotten Teams and Moments from America's Best Sports Town. This book is available through Reedy Press. This segment was produced by Elaine Cha. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations, and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.